What's up, everyone? I'm Catherine Rudder, and this is Life in the Fast Chain. We have a jam-packed episode for you today. Todd McDonald and I give a bit of a news update. We have Richard Gendel Brown on the show talking about his most recent blog post about interoperability. And we have a lawyer's perspective on blockchain. I have Peter Chapman from Clifford Chance on, so you don't want to miss it. Guess who's back, 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 back again, again, again. Todd is back, back, back. Tell a friend. Welcome back. Wow. I'm overwhelmed. Didn't expect that. I did not expect that <laughs> intro. Thank you, Catherine, for having me back. Yes, I tricked you into coming back. So excited <laughs> yes. that you're here. And now it's too late. And now it is way too late. The door is locked. So let's talk about some blockchain news. Yes. Um, so we have a few things we can talk about. Fireworks at Deconomy last week mm-hmm. with Vitalik. Um, social networks, especially in light of what's going on with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's testimony, um, and Amber Balday leaving JP Morgan for her own venture. So let's get started. Let's sure. start with Deconomy. Yeah. So, so Deconomy was an event in Seoul, uh, Korea. Last week, and uh, our man from R three, Anthony Lewis, was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave a really glowing report. There was uh, really a great cross section of uh, participants and presentations, and it was really cool to see a lot of R three alums that were there, including uh, our our man Tim Swanson, uh, oh, yeah. the world's nicest troll. <laughs> um, so it was it was a very good event, uh, top to bottom. They they had talks and topics uh, on very meaty things like central bank digital currency. Uh, Anthony gave a presentation on that, mm-hmm. on on scaling, on uh, public and private blockchains, on on governance. They also had uh, David Chom, who is actually the real OG for crypto, who gave a presentation there. Um, but I think what was probably most fascinating was uh, Vitalik Buterin, who mm-hmm. kind of was like uh, Michael Douglas in Falling Down. He had kind of <laughs> had it uh, on a few topics. Uh, one was uh, he last minute changed his presentation Heard on, about that. on Ethereum, and it was more about the current struggles on scaling for Ethereum. And, and I guess the, the quote was, if someone's actually trying to build a decentralized Uber on Ethereum, um, they wouldn't be able to right now. Mm-hmm. Things have to improve. But that was really just a precursor because so Craig Wright claims to be uh, Satoshi, mm-hmm. um, but but no one believes him. And during one of uh, his presentations and I think a panel discussion, Vitalik took to Twitter and and I would recommend everyone to read at least part of his tweet storm of him attacking uh, Craig Wright and basically calling him a fraud and a charlatan in in different. Uh, he basically got his thesaurus out and it was really <laughs> went to town on Craig Wright. So it was a really interesting. Uh, but it's it's it is pretty incredible the amount of it's always a, a risk with the amount of money at stake yeah. the uh, the shysters uh, and the frauds the are always close behind uh, but everyone really uh, was unified in their distaste for Craig Wright. Yeah, I saw a bunch of articles come out of that. I definitely need to go to his Twitter um, if I can find it amongst the many Vitalik Buterans, which... (laughs) Make sure you pick the right one. (laughs) Make sure I pick the right one. We talked about this a little last time. We also talked a little bit about social media last time, which I do want to continue to talk about. We have two um, articles that we've we've talked about. One from the New York Times um, titled, Tech Thinks It Has a Fix for the Problem It Created. Blockchain, And then another um, article we have here kind of talking about different networks mm-hmm. on um, blockchain. 
I think it's a really interesting topic right now, specifically with all the stuff going on with Facebook. Yes, after uh, Mark Zuckerberg's during the headlights performance at Congress, yeah. uh, it's definitely very appropriate. I think the New York Times article uh, got a lot of uh, play, obviously, mm-hmm. um, uh, where on the front page. And I think it was funny. The one of the quotes they led with was, if I read it here, uh, the technology. Uh, industry has an answer called the blockchain. I love it. They well, say every, the blockchain I a know, lot in the article. But every time <laughs> they say that, I have to do air quotes myself, which is kind of exhausting around the blockchain. <laughs> uh, so this is, I think, very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think it's exciting in a few different ways. There's also um, a lot of work ahead for this. Uh, so it's exciting because this is a classic high payoff bet where there is a potential for a new model to be formed. We talked about this the last time we sat down. Uh, so companies like Blockstack and there's a handful of others that are that are trying to move to a more decentralized uh, format for, I think, when it comes down to it, to identity. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, it's undeniably exciting. I think the challenge is, much like with Bitcoin, you have to be your own bank. In this case, you ended up having to be your own identity store. You have to be in mm-hmm. control of your own private keys. And uh, as we've seen, lots of consumers have opted for others to be in control of that. And that's how Google and Facebook and others have created such value for themselves. Yeah. So now there might be enough of an emotional reaction for us to think of a different model for that. But you still have to f- you still have to solve the friction points and also the risk. Yeah. And also look at how things have happened in the past. I think there's been some interesting uh, observations that this isn't the first time. This is probably the, probably the second or third time that people have gotten fed up and don't want to take it anymore mm-hmm. to try and fix the centralized identity problem. Um, but in the, previously, it hasn't worked. So potentially, now, quote unquote, the blockchain <laughs> can help to solve that, and, w- and we we hope it does. And Blockstack's one company, and there's this other article which goes over uh, some of these other uh, approaches and apps that are being launched. The one one that I <laughs> I was uh, uh, particularly fond of is the Sapien. Uh, the Sa- yeah. Yes, yeah, so you like that? I like that one. Yeah, it's it's a great name. It reminds me of uh, George Costanza's made up charity, the Human Fund. <laughs> Money for people. Um, it's a pretty ambitious if you. It's all for all sapiens to for control all them. sapiens. Yes. That's what the blockchain is for. It's for all sapiens. I am going to quote that. That's got to be the name of something. Um, no, I agree. I like that one as well. Um, that one would be a social news platform um, built on Ethereum, like Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, honestly, after all of this drama with Facebook, would be. Um, really kind of useful, especially with just people getting their news off Facebook and they don't trust Facebook for their news as much anymore. This could just step right in. Yes. We'll, we'll, <laughs> see, if, we'll see if we can maintain the energy and the yeah. outrage and the anger for, yeah. for, for long enough for, for some of these, I guess, some of these new platforms and approaches to actually take hold. But we'll see. Yeah, we will see. That um, next article also has a bunch of different ones that could be used. I also liked Endorse. Did you read about that? It's no, like tell me more. It, I will go for it. So it's like LinkedIn, but instead of, like, technically I can write anything on my LinkedIn. Right. I can say I went to Holy Cross. You don't really know if I went to Holy Cross mm-hmm. or not. Um, but you have to be endorsed and kind of validated by other people, um, and it uses blockchain. So I think it's really interesting. Because I really don't want any more LinkedIn in my life. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if I can help it. It's like LinkedIn, but without spam. Would like to see what that would look like, but I think it's a good idea. I mean, I don't think... I, I worry that as soon as I would log in to endorse, <laughs> uh, a dozen people would ask me to back their endorse ICO. Endorse them. Yes. Yeah. 
that is a risk that you would have to take. Yes. Um, but yeah, there are a bunch of ones that plan to get on blockchain, and and um, there's the one that we talked about last time, Steemit, which mm-hmm. I'm a little more skeptical of, but I think it's cool. It's um, it's good way to use the blockchain. Let's see how it pans out. <laughs> yeah, we will see. All right. Well, thank you, Todd. Do you have any recent news that you'd like to talk about? Personal blockchain. <laughs> Personal. Well, I, I did just get back from Sedona and the Grand Canyon, so I can say that was very, very nice. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, I yes. thought you were at Deconomy. Well, Silly no, me. no. The only thing the Grand Canyon is missing is the blockchain, it turns out. Richard Gendel Brown is on the line. Thanks for joining me, Richard. How's the London studio looking? It's amazing. Um, every time we invite people to our new London office, I'm always to, always so keen to show them this. Uh, the idea of having a recording studio in your own office is just amazing. So it's the first time I've actually sat in here. So um, it's um, it, it's great to um, great to be using it for um, for this podcast. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Yay! Of course, you're flattering me. So you recently published a really impactful blog post called. Universal Interoperability, Why Enterprise Blockchain Applications Should Be Deployed to Shared Networks. Um, So let's start off. Can you give us a little bit of a summary of what this blog post is about? Yeah, sure. Really um, catchy title, eh? Um, I'm sure the um, I'm sure the readership would have been a hundred times higher if I actually knew how to advertise these things. Um, interoperability. It sounds like such an unbelievably tedious topic, uh, but there was there was method behind my um, seeming madness. Um, the the post really talks about the the vision we've had for Corda, the, the open source blockchain platform we're building here at R3 with our with our extended community. It talks about the vision we've had for several years. Is. But what became clear to me quite recently was that something that I didn't think was obvious, but something that I thought was relatively well understood about the potential of blockchain in business um, wasn't actually as widely understood or as accepted as I thought it was. So I wrote this piece. And, and the, the piece is, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's actually quite straightforward once you unpack it. What I, what I say is, just think back to the first time you ever heard about Ethereum. So I actually talk about the, the, the Ethereum public network, which is something that we're all um, you know, somewhat, somewhat in awe of. It's, it's an amazing achievement. And, and, and you think back to what's been achieved there, you know, a, a, a universal global sort of shared open network that multiple different applications written by different people, different groups for different purposes at different times with different incentives, with different, um, with different purposes, are nevertheless all able to operate on that same network and interoperate. You know, applications written for one purpose can be built upon by somebody else for a different purpose. You have this single shared network and all these different applications can interoperate. And, and that was, you know, that, that was a, it was mind blowing when when we when when I suddenly when I first saw it and um and remained so and it and it's a really powerful vision you know multiple applications interoperating um because it because it that idea is you know it's kind of how the world works you know every every person every business is at the heart of multiple different relationships trading networks trading partnerships um and 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 the interoperability the um the, the movement between them it is critical. 
so so that informed a huge amount of the design of, of Corda back in 2015 when we started on it. Because the question we asked ourselves was, um, how can we how can we take that idea that that thing you get on the public network, um, but make it work for business? Um, and, and there's an obvious question, which is, well, why couldn't you just use that same technology? And, and believe me, we tried. But the problem is there are some fundamental non-negotiable requirements that the businesses have that these public networks, Ethereum in particular, just don't operate, just don't offer specifically. Um, privacy and, and scalability. You know, if I enter into a deal with you, it, it's just not appropriate for other people um, who shouldn't know about it to know about it. Um, so we started on, on the work that became Corda. But, and then I guess this is probably the, the stepping off point of the paper. The point all along was still to capture the power of that open network, the idea that you could have a Corda network with privacy, with scalability, suitable for the use cases of enterprises and businesses and, and other large firms and so forth. Um, um, so it would be suitable for them, but you'd get that interoperability. You could deploy multiple different applications built by different people at different times onto the same network, but with privacy and scalability and all the other things businesses need, and it will just work. Um, and the reason for the blog post, and you know, I'll, I'll pause in, in, in a moment. The reason for the blog post was um, I thought that was obvious. You know, that was one of the key values, one of the key reasons why these public blockchains um, got so successful. And the whole idea of Corda was to distill that, capture it, and, and apply it to business. Um, but what became apparent to me, really only quite recently, was. Um, Many of the people building permissioned blockchains, many of the people building private blockchains, and I explicitly mentioned Fabric from, from IBM and, and, and then Hyperledger and Quorum from JP Morgan, um, but there are others. I specifically mentioned them because as I've seen some of the deployments and seen some of the way their, um, their advocates describe them, it's almost as if they've missed that point and they're deploying lots of standalone networks, different fabric networks, different quorum networks, one per application, one per use case. And to my mind, that kind of just misses the point. Um, it, it, that's not where the value is. That's, that's not the right approach in my view. So I wrote this blog post to try and just, I guess, just reemphasize the point we've been making for the last few years, but obviously not, not loudly enough, um, that, that, um, that multiple applications on a shared, universal, open, global, um, but transparently governed network is the way to do it. And that's what we're building with the Corda network. Yeah, so that's interesting. I think um, one of the things that maybe I struggle with and then um, other kind of average, not brilliant uh, readers would be how do you have this open, shared, interoperable network and still maintain that privacy? Because I know that's obviously so important, but um, it's hard to kind of imagine at this at this point. How do you maintain that? It's a good question, and and I should stress at this point that um, you know, there's so many false claims in this industry. There's so much snake oil. So many people promising things that either don't exist or they can't deliver. And and I've, you know, I've promised to myself I never want to be one of those people. So so I always want to, and I think this probably drives some, you know, some probably drives some salespeople mad. I never want to make sort of like over the top claims um, just for a soundbite. So so in, so in what follows, you'll see that I'm actually quite cautious and, and, and hopefully measured in, 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 in the claims I make because you know as, as any engineer will tell you there's there's no such thing as a perfect solution there's only trade-offs um, and here's what I mean um, so if you if you think about how a traditional blockchain works and by traditional I mean something like Bitcoin or ethereum for very good engineering reasons they work on the basis of full broadcast um, everybody sees every transaction everybody processes every transaction um, the network effectively has to run at the speed of the slowest participant or, or the slowest still 
still connected participant, if you like. Um, that's how it has to be because of the security assumptions they operate under and the problem they're trying to solve. It's a very um, elegant, very um, impressive solution, um, and we've been heavily influenced by it. But of course, that just doesn't work, as I argued earlier, for business because you can't have all transactions being processed by everybody. Um, so you look at what the, the 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 look at what some of the the permissioned blockchains do. What they do is to solve that problem is is, is two things, both of which I think miss the point. The first is they, and this is the point of this article, is they say, right, well, one thing we'll do is we'll just deploy a completely standalone separate network for each business use case. So for this syndicated lending use case, we'll deploy one network over here. For this trade finance example and this supply chain example, those two examples, we'll deploy them on separate networks. So no interoperability, no connectivity. If you ever needed to link them together, it's complex APIs and APIs and two-phase commits and, and all that complexity. But at least it keeps them apart and, 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 and the data is private. But then worse, even within that, um, because within that, the, within that, private, in that network, the default is full broadcast, you still don't get the subdivision of data you need. Hence why things like Fabric had to invent channels, why Quorum has this confidential transactions, confidential contracts idea. But as I wrote in a piece uh, last year, the problem is that just, that just doesn't work if you have dynamic entry. It doesn't work if you have free mo- moving assets. You end up with trapped assets. You, move, you end up with sort of very, very brittle design. So, so that approach, it, it kind of gives you some privacy, but it, but it just doesn't work for business and it can never support this, this universal interoperability, this idea of multiple different applications on the same network. So, we, so, so you asked, well, how did we solve that? Um, and there's no magic here. So there are, there are some limits to what I'm about to say, but there is one key difference. When we designed Coda back in, you know, back in 2015 and into 2016, you know, we knew we were trying to achieve this universal interoperability. We knew we had to solve this privacy problem. So we took a very different approach to, to the transaction processing model. We said, we won't start with global broadcast. We'll start at the completely other end of the spectrum. We will break the data down to individual units that we call states. Um, these, these individual units are intended to represent an individual agreement, a contract, you know, an individual trade or deal or you know, parcel or consignment, you know, you know, something that two or more people need to be in consensus about. That will be the building block and they will just go to the people who need them. So that way you can have lots of different people on the network transacting for different reasons, either using the same business logic, the same application or different business logic. Um, and it doesn't matter because because the data only, only, only is only shared by design amongst the people who need it. Um, but of course, this is a consensus network. This is a um, this is a network intended to bring people into consensus to avoid wherever possible centralized authority to minimize trust. So sometimes, if I've got an asset, I may need to sell it to you or send it to somebody else. And the first thing you will rightly ask is. Prove it. Prove that you own that. Prove that you got hold of that correctly and that you still own it. Um, and the key difference with Corda and the key thing that enables the Corda network and, and this interoperability is it's only at that point do I then pr- provide to you that chain of provenance. I just send to you the evidence and the evidence and no more of where I got it from with, with confidential keys to hide some identities. But I show you where I got it from um, to prove to you that it's legitimate. Maybe you're swapping that asset with me for something else. So you have to prove to me where you got yours. And so I learn a little bit about your application and where you got your asset from. You learn a little bit about me, but no more precisely, no more than is necessary to to affect that that transfer, as opposed to the other model, which is to give you everything up front just in case you need it. And there's a huge sort of almost just just um, you know, catastrophe of um, of oversharing of data. So so that's that's kind of like the high level idea of how it works. You know, I only share the data I need to with you, and then I provide the proof that you request to convince you that the the, the data is correct and the 
asset came from where it was supposed to. And so in that way, any given node just has has just the subset of the global ledger that it needs. And that subset can contain some data from one application and one trading network, some data from another application and business network over here. Um, and you have just what you need to convince yourself of, of the provenance. So so that allows us to have multiple applications on the same network being sort of like, you know, mixed and remixed and connected to um, to, to meet business needs. Um, and then final point, that solves most of the problems that we um, that we um, that we see in, in in real life scenarios. But sometimes you do need to go further. Sometimes even that provenance information is, is is more than you'd want to share. So that's why we have additional layers. We have confidential transactions, and um, and as everybody knows, it's it's why we um for the longer term we're looking at zero knowledge proofs. But in parallel, because we think this is the winning technology and the way to do it um, in the short to medium term and beyond, um, our, our, our relationship with um, Intel for their software god extension their SGX technology, um, which will, um, will provide that extra layer of confidentiality on top of the entire thing. Yeah, you have a, a great video up on our YouTube account um, talking about SGX and, and that technology and how we use it with, with Corda. Um, but so you talked, uh, you touched a little bit on the Corda network, um, and in the blog you talk about it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the network, what you envision in the future? Yeah, so so if you think about where I've been going, I've been saying you know again, let's look at the look at the look at the public Ethereum network. You know, there is a public Ethereum network. There aren't twenty, there aren't fifty. Um, there's there's one public Ethereum network that all those applications get deployed to, um, and it has its strengths and its weaknesses. You know, we've we've we've, talk, we've talked about them, but it's but it's. It's different people all agreeing because it suits them and their incentives are aligned. Um, it, it's the right thing for them to do. Different people choosing to deploy to that network rather than another one that creates that network effect and creates the utility for the participants. Um, and 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 that's that's what that's what the Corda network, um, which um, you know, which which the which the people who are already on it are finding and and, and others as, as they join in the future find um, that that's what's so powerful. And I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But. But when I describe it, hopefully the picture going through some people's heads is, well, isn't that just obvious? Isn't that what you do? But the point, of course, is it, it, it's not obvious. Um, I linked to a, um, to, to, to a video in my blog post that, of a talk given by, uh, by Jerry Cuomo, who's a very senior, very, very um, you know, impressive individual at, at IBM, an IBM fellow. And when I worked at IBM, you know, I, I worked in his organization. You know, I, was, I was in awe of him. This is a seriously smart guy. He's, um, you know, I'd never say anything bad about him. He's He's astonishingly accomplished, um, but um, but um, but I did disagree with his uh, his presentation. There's a presentation I linked to where he talks about the the different fabric, the different blockchain fabric, or the different hyperledger fabric networks that IBM is running. And his point was, I think he said that said that IBM was managing ten fabric networks, and 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 I was and I was thinking, well, okay, ten, a hundred, a thousand, maybe there's a metric in IBM for how many they have. And and my point is, the metric should be one. The, the aspiration should be there is one shared network that everybody uses. It's not helpful if there's a different one for each application. So, 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 so counting them and, 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 and I guess being proud the more there are kind of misses the point. Um, so, 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 but of course, it's hard because if you, if you say, as, as we're doing and as our partners are and, our, and as we open this up, as, as we are doing, we say it's better for everybody if there's one network. 
you then have to get into some really difficult questions of incentives and governance because the network, as in just a, a network, is just a collection of nodes. There are some common things we have to agree on, you know, and, and some of them are really quite, really quite boring. But they're just something we have to agree on. Reasonable people can disagree on on these things, but we have to choose something like, you know, what is the minimum version of Corda? What's what's the largest message size? Just some just some things that we need to make sure that we're compatible. Now, I as you know, CTO of R3. I don't want to be in the business of dictating this. One, if this is seen as, or if there's any control that, that we have over this, people will rightfully, I mean, they genuinely will be rightfully skeptical. They will think, well, what's the trick here? Is, is Richard trying to control this? Is Richard trying to you know, become some sort of dominant force? You know, that, that, that doesn't help anyone. And if there's any suspicion of that, this thing doesn't work. So, so, what, what, so the whole point of the Corda network is we're really upfront about what are the things that we have to agree on in order to be compatible, in order for our nodes to interoperate. Um, you know, what, 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 what network parameters? Um, what you know, how, how, how are we going to resolve some identity questions? We identify what needs to be governed, and then we put in place a, a, an openly, openly governed, transparent process to make sure that the different stakeholders, some of whom have different incentives and don't necessarily have the same the, the same aspirations, those different participants can come together and agree on what those what those pieces, what those what those, what those agreements should be and how they should evolve. So the quarter network at its core again you know you thought interoperability was dull you know governance is even more boring um, except when you get it wrong such as with the bitcoin block size debate things go very wrong indeed so the quarter network is intended to be this open network that that um that, that you know the entire quarter community can connect to can connect their nodes to can deploy their applications to but with a way to make sure that the things that we need to be in consensus on the things we need to need to agree on make sure there's a way to agree that and evolve that over time so that we don't end up in some stalemate some deadlock or in any kind of situation where it seems that one party or one group of parties is trying to exert control over another. That just doesn't work and it wouldn't be helpful. Hence why we're trying to get this right up front. I think one of the the best things that I like about your writing and your blog posts um, is how readable they are. And uh, I could understand it without having to read it um, many times. Um, so I think that's really great. One funny thing that I thought, and maybe I just don't read enough blog posts, I did not know what TLDR meant. And so I felt you're so much more hip than me. I had to Google it. <laughs> so um, yeah, I remember um, it's actually funny. One of the, one of the people I work with um, um, didn't know what that meant a, f- a few months ago either. So I um, so because I because um, I'd used it in, in a few emails and um, I had to explain it to him. And now pretty much every email I get from him, he's used he, he uses it. I think TLDR is one of those things that you think, why wasn't that why, why wasn't that abbreviation invented um, years ago? Um, I thought you were actually going to say moribund. There's a uh, this this will be a joke that or this will be an observation that pretty much like about. 3% of the listeners will get. There was a um, really funny um, spoof chat show on, um, on on TV in the UK in the 90s. And the the, the, the key joke of an entire episode um, rested on the fact that the uh, presenter didn't know what the word moribund meant, but didn't want to admit it. So I thought, I thought I'd sneak that in. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I felt like my grandma because I was Googling it. Love you, grandma. But I, uh, I really <laughs> was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. And I've had that before where I've typed something in and someone in my family, like my grandma, is like, I think you misspelled that. What does SMH mean? (laughs) (laughs) So I felt like I had a grandma moment. Okay, so Richard, um, where can everyone follow you, follow your blogs on Twitter? What are your social media accounts so everyone can get the latest from you? 
Sure. Okay. I'm probably most active on Twitter. My handle there is Gendal, G-E-N-D-A-L. I think most people know this, but Gendal is actually legitimately really my middle name. Um, thank you, mum. Thank you, dad, for that. Um, to get, but it does mean I get any any ID on any website I ever want is always available because nobody else even thinks of going for Gendal. Because I say that, now what will happen is um, someone will sign up for them all. Um, and if you want to follow um, um, my content, um, my personal blog is gendal.me. Um, but what I actually do is post all my content, um, all my all my content related to blockchain and R3 and Corda directly to the Corda blog first, which is medium.com slash Corda. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much for the time you've spent with me today. I am here with Peter Chapman from the huge law firm Clifford Chance. Thank you so much for coming to the office today. You're very welcome. You're here from London, right? I am, yep. Just uh, over for a few days. Flew in on Monday and fly out uh, tonight, Wednesday. So a very fleeting visit. Yeah, that's quick. What brings you to New York City? Uh, Mainly for sort of client meetings, uh, particularly around Mm -hmm. fintech, blockchain, um, coming to see you guys. Yes. um, which, which is great. Um, I've got some presentations this afternoon with, uh, with one of our clients around sort of fintech M&A. Um, yeah, so it's a very kind of uh, a very busy uh, trip, but um, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, I'm lucky I get to capitalize off your, <laughs> off your U.S. trip. Um, so let's get into it. Recently, cool. you were quoted in a Financial Times article, which took me a very long time to access because I do <laughs> not have a Financial Times subscription. Um, but luckily, someone else in the office did. Um, so this article is called Law Firms Look to Capitalize on Initial Coin Offering Boom. And you are quoted here, more traditional corporates are looking at ICOs and more institutional clients are moving in, says Peter Chapman, senior associate in banking and finance at Clifford Chance, which is advising on a number of ICOs. If we're not in this space, then we will fall behind. True or false, did you say that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very very true. Yeah, that was me. Bank to rights. Absolutely. And I I mean, I think what I was trying to say there is, you know, our clients are, are, are dealing more and more uh, with blockchain, with ICOs, and they're really demanding that their lawyers know about this stuff, that they can advise on uh, the legal and regulatory implications of, of, of being involved in, in both ICOs as a particular sort of use of blockchain, but more generally the technology and then how it's being used by financial institutions um, and I think, you know, from our perspective, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer. We we have to understand the technology. Mm-hmm. Our clients, um, you know, are using it more and more. They're testing it more and more. Uh, and we expect, you know, financial products and services to be developed using that technology. So, um, as I say, if we're if we're not there, we're falling behind. Yeah, totally. So so that's why Clifford Chance is interested in blockchain. But um, what do you think are some of the short terms and then also the long terms of lawyers like yourself being in the know about this technology? Yeah, I mean, I think mainly for from a client perspective, um, you know, actually having legal and regulatory um, teams involved uh, in the short term in developing how this technology is being used uh, for financial services and, and, and other um, applications, I think it's really important because actually you know, what we found is you bring the lawyers or the, the reg team in sort of late in the day and actually you sometimes have to go back to the drawing board because actually the way the product or the, the, the particular application has been developed, 
um, you know, runs up against um, legal and regulatory um, issues and, mm-hmm. and, you know, hasn't been structured perhaps in the way that, you know, if you'd brought a, a lawyer into the into the fold, perhaps at an earlier stage, we might have gone about yeah. things slightly different. So definitely from a from the sort of short term, um, you know, we, from our client's perspective, I think there's a real uh, role for lawyers in helping to sort of shape that path. And, you know, lawyers have this um, unfortunate reputation of being the sort of naysayers and the kind of, you know, prohibitive um, force. But actually, what we really want to try and do is, is find ways of using this technology, which is compliant with law and, and, and regulation as it is. Um, but we also need to be sort of mindful of what might change in the f- future. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we really want to try and do for our clients is find solutions to, to, to be able to um, navigate those legal and regulatory issues from an early stage um, in the design process. Um, you know, obviously, from a Clifford Chance perspective, that you know, that, that has benefits too because we're working with clients on uh, very interesting cutting-edge projects, um, you know, mm-hmm. collaborative um, uh, collaborative projects between lots of financial institutions um, and really sort of, you know, tackling some some of what we really enjoy, which is the legal and regulatory issues in a, in a completely brand new setting. So, you know, there's 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 obviously benefits for us in in doing that and our lawyers understanding and getting to grips with this technology. Um, and ultimately, in the long term, I think you know this this technology is going to be used more and more frequently. And you know, we need to make sure that our lawyers understand how the technology works uh, to be able to properly advise our clients uh, going forward. That makes sense as to why your clients are coming to you about blockchain projects. Um, so what are their expectations of you uh, specifically in terms of understanding blockchain? Yeah, I mean, f- from our perspective, um, we have to understand how the technology works. Now, that doesn't mean we understand exactly the sort of coding and all the rest of it oh, at this yeah. stage. I'm not a developer. So. No, exactly. But <laughs> but we need to understand the the attributes of blockchain technology um, in order to be able to advise on these projects. I mean, mm-hmm. if we don't understand how it works, how data is being used, um, you know, how, how the particular application uses blockchain, then we're not able to apply what, what we're really here for, which is the legal analysis um, to that. So, at the end of the day, we are lawyers. Our expertise is in the legal and regulatory issues, but we have to be able to apply that to the particular um, scenario. And that, and that, in this instance, really means having that understanding of, of blockchain. So clients that come to us are looking for an, a number of things. Clearly, understanding how the technology works is, is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're finding increasingly is, you know, yes, they, they, that's almost a given. What they really want from us is... Um, you know, our ability to apply law and regulation to, to these constructs. Um, and, and that's complex. It's multidisciplinary. Um, you know, it's not just a regulatory lawyer like myself. It's, um, you know, a data lawyer. It's a technology lawyer. It's a commercial contracts lawyer. Um, you know, it's it's a, a, a risk litigation lawyer looking at where, where sort of challenges might arise. Um, and increasingly, actually, what we're finding is clients are, looking for a firm that can do this on a multi-jurisdictional basis. You know, okay. one thing that blockchain does is bring together, you know, multiple financial institutions. You want to have a network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that very often means institutions from lots of different states. Um, and being able to sort of look at um, the application, the use of that blockchain through those different lenses, those different jurisdictions um, is, is, is pretty important for our clients. So, you know, it's, it's that sort of combined offering I think that the clients are really looking for but the you know the understanding of the technology how it works is is really the sort of cornerstone of that 
Mm -hmm. So we know that blockchain will affect your clients and you guys are working to to help them with that. But is there a chance that it could change the practice of law at all? That's a that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, we as a firm are looking at how we might use blockchain in different instances. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, where we have document management processes that require you to be able to sort of track documentation and, and, and changes as they pass through multiple hands, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a potential use case for, for, for blockchain. Similarly, like many of the financial institution clients we have that are looking at, can you use blockchain in the context of um, identity verification, customer due diligence, you know, all law firms, you know, have similar processes where they're getting in documentation from from clients. Um, so I could see that blockchain may play a role in, in, in that sort of application too. I suppose one of the, one of the other instances uh, where it may change our business over time is this idea of sort of smart contracts you know the mm-hmm. a lot of the applications are being built using this idea of uh, smart contracts um, and we're doing you know we're very much involved in that discussion of you know, what are small smart contracts how does you know how does that compare to legal contracts mm-hmm. how do you enforce these uh, what are the issues with using smart contracts? And ultimately, do lawyers need to be able to write smart contracts? I mean, yeah. that's that's a sort of pretty you know, interesting open question, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, clearly blockchain impacts our clients. I think you know, we'd, we'd be remiss if we weren't looking at blockchain from our own business perspective as well. Yeah. So do you have lawyers with you who can read and write code at all? Oh, uh, we do have, funnily enough, some lawyers that do um, encode documentation. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, not not sort of in terms of blockchain yet, um, but we, we certainly have um, uh, a team that's actually you know, develops sort of automated contract drafting uh-huh. um, that, that takes sort of templates and turn, turn those into uh, automated contracts that, that clients can use themselves. Um, so we have that that team's actually based out of our Amsterdam office, and clients are using that more and more. They they yeah. like the idea of being able to kind of automate the drafting as much as they can. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing we've just launched actually just last week, and it was in the in the sort of legal press, was um, you know we now offer as part of our newly launched technology academy, we have a, a, a sort of an education program that all of our lawyers have access to, and particularly our junior lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that program, we've um, we've launched a sort of coding course for, for our lawyers. Wow. Um, so they will learn some basics of you know, how do I um, encode, how do I create my own programs. Um, and that's, I mean, to my mind, and others may have a different view, that's, that's not necessarily because we think our lawyers in the very short term need to be able to code and need to be able to create smart contracts. But I think that process does a couple of things. One, it means you get a familiarity with technology and how that works and how you create software. But I also think the discipline of um, you know, turning something into contract code is, is very important because actually it's, it's very logic driven. It's very structured. And actually, if you think about it from a from a lawyer's perspective, if you're writing a contract or a, a note of advice, you also need to be logic logical and structured in how you approach things. So I think the the skill set that you get from doing that sort of coding course, I think, will be helpful in your sort of everyday you know, legal job. 
Yeah, definitely. The extent of my coding capabilities are making uh, words bold on WordPress. So <laughs> I... <laughs> well, I have to admit to being a little bit of a geek. So I, I back in uh, back in my day, my sort of uh, A levels, as we call them in, in the UK, I, I did computer science as one of my oh, four great. sort of major major subjects. So I. Um, yeah, I, I did a little bit of coding in my time and have to admit to actually producing a piece of software that was basically a flight simulator. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, which I also thought was pretty cool. Um, but my, my teachers thought I should be doing something slightly more worthwhile, but there we go. That's very interesting. <laughs> you really yes. just wound up my uh, my bolding on WordPress. <laughs> I got to yeah. work on that. Maybe I should try and join your, your course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So what specifically, I know you can't talk too much about this stuff, um, but what specifically has Clifford Chance been working on in the blockchain space? Yes, no, I mean, it's a good question, and, and you're right that we can't sort of talk about too many specifics. Um, you know, one project that's just been in the public domain, uh, which we've been working with a company called HQLAX, um, which may seem the sort of press releases around um, these guys are in the in the business of creating a sort of collateral management platform, trying to make collateral transfers between financial institutions much more efficient, uh, speeding up the the, the, the transfer of, of collateral between them, um, and and that's all been based on the the quarter blockchain uh, platform. Um, so HQLAX recently announced that they'd they'd actually uh, piloted a, a transaction where um, uh, collateral had been transferred. Uh, using using blockchain, um, so that was that was really exciting. We were working on you know what are the legal and regulatory issues associated with doing that. How do we solve those? Um, how do we construct this platform from a legal and regulatory perspective to work? Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately, you know, because you're involving financial institutions in this, you you know that are going to be transferring collateral and um, you know need to ensure that their relationships are properly documented. So we've been working on the sort of rules of the of the platform. How does you know, how do people interact with each other? How do they send instructions? What happens if it goes wrong? Yeah. Um, so we've we've been working uh, with HQLX on on that project. But we've done we've actually been working on quite a few different projects um, with institutions, fi- financial services, and actually some corporates in in, in other spaces. Um, but covering things like payments, um, insurance, um, trade receivables financing. Um, we've been working with a, a number of institutions around ICOs, um, which are all based on sort of uh, blockchain. So, yeah, it's been pretty varied. So how has the space evolved since you guys initially got involved in blockchain? Because yeah. it's evolving every day, oh, I feel like. It, it is. <laughs> it's hard to keep up sometimes. Um <laughs> I think one thing I would say at a real kind of macro level is go wind back a few years and we first started talking to clients and we're talking about sort of you know, GCs and lawyers at financial institutions and you go and talk to them about blockchain and they'd say, oh, yeah, I've heard about Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. don't really know what it is, um, so it sounds interesting, but sure, not not doesn't seem that relevant to us. Yeah. Then more recently, the hype has been, okay, well, it's not Bitcoin, it's the underlying technology and banks and financial institutions sort of really picked up on that and said, oh, actually, uh, we can see some uses here. We can see how we might use this technology to do things differently, to make things more efficient or to offer different products and services. Mm -hmm. And the sort of, 
our counterparts at these institutions, you know, started asking us questions about how, how does this work? You know, you know, what are your thoughts on this? What about this issue? Um, and so on. Um, so there's definitely been an increase in the kind of knowledge and understanding and the appreciation of what blockchain might be able to do for the business. Um, so that, that's, been a, that's been a real evolution, I would say. Yeah, definitely. It's so much more just mainstream to know about this stuff. I know. I find the litmus test is whether my dad asks about something. So <laughs> it's funny when he starts to ask me about blockchain and Bitcoin. And, uh, oh, I Then love I know that. things have become kind of a bit more mainstream. Yeah. yeah, I know. I've talked about my grandma before on this podcast, but she knows a lot about blockchain. Oh, now. nice. Yeah. Killing it, Grandma. So my last question. So have you identified any impediments to use of blockchain technology in the finance sector? I mean, there's, there's definitely challenges to using blockchain. Um, and you know, many of those depend on how you want to use it. Um, mm-hmm. So the more regulated the type of business, actually, the more difficult it becomes. Um, you know, if it's fairly unregulated, then you might find it easier um, but but yeah, there are challenges with with using blockchain. I think one of the most practical, well, there's a couple of practical challenges. I think um, not strictly legal or regulatory. One is very often these projects require a sort of network effect. You need a mm-hmm. number of institutions to participate to really uh, reap the rewards or the or the benefits of of the application. And actually, we all know that once you start getting multiple banks or financial institutions in the room. Actually, getting an agreement as to how things are going to work um, becomes you know, that much more difficult. So that piece of practical challenge is, is really how, how do you do these sort of collaborative type projects between lots of different institutions? And I think probably what we found is that actually starting a bit smaller sometimes helps. You, know, you mm-hmm. start with a core set of institutions and then you, know, you can be accretive in, in, in sort of adding uh, institutions over time as a sort of solution to that that sort of problem. I think one of the other challenges, uh, again, a sort of practical challenge, a lot of the um, applications we've seen have been around kind of securities and, and sort of assets being tokenized into blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, real-world assets or they um, uh, require some kind of real-world interaction. Um, and actually one of the real-world interactions that often are required is, well, moving money. Yeah, um, and that's been, I think, one of the challenges that you might be able to, you know, affect a transfer of securities. But if you need to pay for those, you know, you still need to instruct your bank, and it still has to go through the, the existing payment rails. Yeah. Um, so that that's been a, a sort of practical challenge. But I mean, there are there are myriad challenges that need <laughs> to be uh, worked through. Whether it's, um, yeah, how do you characterize what the thing is on the on the blockchain, the token? Yeah. Uh, data privacy issues around. You know, do people have a right to have their data deleted? And how do you do that in the context of a blockchain where you have this kind of immutability and, um, you know, when you've got multiple institutions with records in lots of different jurisdictions, whose law actually even applies to that construct? Yeah. Um, you know, so there's there's quite a lot of um, challenges, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are answers to these. And that's that's part of our role is really trying to help financial institutions navigate those answers. Yeah, it's such a nascent technology that I feel like we're just going to be chipping away. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming in today. That was awesome. Uh, Safe travels. Have a safe flight back. So if anyone wants to keep in touch, get get involved, how can they reach out to you or Clifford Chance just generally? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if if you're interested, um, you know, 
please feel free to reach out to me. I'm Peter Chapman at Clifford Chance. Um, and you'll find my email address on our website. Um, we also have a really cool mini site called Talking Tech. So if you go, cool. if you Google Talking Tech Clifford Chance, you'll find some really interesting articles on there around kind of legal regulatory issues. Um, uh, pretty digestible as well for a law firm, yeah. I would would add. They're kind of more kind of uh, <laughs> disclaimer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't you don't need a, a a law degree to read the articles, but well, um, thank yeah. goodness. Do do reach out. Awesome. You're gonna get so many emails now because this <laughs> is the most popular podcast on Apple Podcasts. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. We have great guests lined up for the future podcasts, so stay tuned.